0: hitting record and let's do our clap one two three clap nice exquisite
1: (laughs) haven't you missed this i've missed I've, i've missed this too Meanwhile, a German on a bicycle who had the downward slope of the road to his advantage then responded by making his own charge towards the British barricade on his bicycle, only to have one of the British soldiers run out and stick his rifle in the spokes of the wheel, causing the German to do a somersault over the handlebars.
0: (laughs) What is this, Indiana Jones? (laughs) Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George.
1: Good evening, my children.
0: (laughs) Yes, good evening to you as well, sir. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this time on the podcast?
1: Well, I will answer your question, but before we get to that, I think we should bring our listeners, um, assuming they're not either collecting Social Security or dead by this point, up to speed (laughs) on what we've been doing, where we've been all this time.
0: Yes, because we have been out of our... Um, irregular schedule even more than usual recently, haven't we? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, would you like to start or should I?
1: Um, I'll go ahead and start, yeah. So I, uh, I got a new job, uh, which entailed me moving to a different state, which kind of sucked, um, because it's a state that I hate, but, you know. We we all do what we have to do, and my new job is uh, pretty demanding. I've got both uh, teaching responsibilities, and I have to I have to deal with undergrads all day, oh. every day, oh. Oh. from from dawn until dusk. But <laughs> what you know, have you done? We uh, you know we all make sacrifices. We all make sacrifices. But anyway, so yeah, got a new job, very busy. Had to move. Uh, I had a little minor car accident, which was just a, a headache dealing with, you know, insurance and all that. So, yeah, just a lot going on, but uh, getting trying to get back into a, a good groove here.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to hear somebody's dealing with the undergraduates, you know, um, wet work doesn't pay well enough, but those undergraduates, they really need to be dealt with, don't they?
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> if, if someone had only dealt with us, the world would probably be a happier place. <laughs>
0: yes, well, uh, you, you're probably right about that. Yes. Well, and, you know, everybody knows that I've been working like crazy. You know, Mr. 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 Uh, uh, factory Guy over here. Yeah, I, I even got a upgrade at my, my current workplace, and the hours have been absolutely insane. Uh, lots of drama at, at work. Basically, uh, I just put in, like, three 12-hour shifts in a row this week, which doesn't sound like much, but it's, you know, really demanding work. And every day I went home, I was half delirious and, you know, crying. <laughs> that's the, that's not true at all. I was going to say, is
1: that normal or are you normally only one-third delirious? <laughs>
0: yeah. No, I was 75% delirious at the end of every single day. And it was so weird seeing all the people go home as I was coming in from the, you know, the first or second shift. I forget which it is the previous shift to mine to see them go home at the beginning of my shift work 12 hours and then as i'm leaving seeing the same people coming back in that was very strange <laughs>
1: but you just, you know, be- just become time. a cog in the machine
0: <laughs> another brick in the wall yeah well it's all very nice but the trouble with all of this is i have to admit I've forgotten of everything about Adrian uh, Carton de Verre, our subject, except that he shot an Indian man in the ass.
1: Well, I mean, let's let's be real here. That that was kind of the highlight. Like everything else, sort of fades in comparison to that that little escapade.
0: Yes. So we do have some catch up to do. Some uh, catch up to do, don't we?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, this is true. But and this may come as a shock to you because I know this this technology stuff is a bit foreign to you. But you could actually go back and listen to our last episode if you wanted.
0: Uh, Wait, I'm sorry. What did you say? I was busy banging these rocks together to produce fire.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) What a comedian. We know you're just being deliberately obtuse here.
0: Yeah, well, I know. But it's been so long since we've done the show, I've become as withered and bitter as a cat lady with a boxed wine addiction. And with that being said, I think it's time to just get on down there to the history lab because it's probably dusty as all hell at this point. And... We've got some work to do.
1: Oh, God. Aaron's asthma is going to act up. <laughs> what?
0: What do a Polish swamp, a Lithuanian dungeon, a plane crash in Italy, and a fall down the stairs in Southeast Asia have in common? None of them could stop Adrian Carton de Viert, the world's least killable Belgian man. Join us in the trenches of World War One as we perfect our polo game and put the Grim Reaper out of a job. So, George, since it's been so long, I think I'll ask you a question about time. How do you think it works? Is it linear?
1: That's a stupid question. I do not get paid enough to think about stuff like that.
0: <laughs> Dumbass, you should have stayed on the hourly pay. That salary shit is gonna drain your masculine vitality and cognitive faculties.
1: It's a pretty bold assumption that I had cognitive faculties in the first place. Besides, hourly pay is for the week.
0: Well, look, we have to have our intro question or the show simply cannot go on.
1: That's your job. Yeah, I know, but everyone knows millennials don't work. Okay, fine. Well then, Mr. 480-hour workweek, why don't you tell us about time? Well,
0: okay, whatever it is, it ain't linear. I have seen Al Gore way too much this year. What? So, George, if you had to invent a time machine and travel into the past, what time period would you visit, and what horrifying future event would you warn them about in an attempt to prevent it?
1: What a fascinating question, Aaron. I would ah, probably well, thank you. Probably travel back to around 700 BC, no, 750 to 800 BC in Greece. And I would try to prevent them from rediscovering writing because back in the Bronze Age, you know, 1200 BC, they had writing. And what did they do with it? They used it to have like taxes and tributes and administrative bullshit and bureaucracy. And then the Bronze Age collapse happened and they lost writing. And I guarantee everyone was much happier for it. So, I would go back and try to prevent the Western world from obtaining writing again, because then I would never have to grade another paper or fill out another stupid form the rest of my life. I could just, you know, like bang rocks together.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of I kind of think you're on the right track with that. Who was you probably know better than I, but there wasn't there some philosopher who said that writing was the death of thinking or something like that?
1: That sounds like something a philosopher would say, but I. And I know I've heard it, but I can't I can't put a put a face to it at the moment.
0: Probably some Greek. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or and even even, even worse, you know, may may the Lord forgive me for saying this word, some enlightenment philosopher.
0: Oh, oh how how could you even say such a filthy word on this family show? I know, we're,
1: we're going to have to censor that part out. But so you <laughs> tell me, Aaron, if you had to invent a time machine and travel into the past, what would your goal be?
0: I would invent a time machine uh, that could fit in my pocket, and I'd go back in time and to, I don't know, I was going to make a joke about telling myself to never start this show, but that would be deliberately dishonest and just self-degrading for no reason at all. Uh, <laughs> I think I'd go back and um, and uh, warn, warn uh, I don't know, I was going to say something about the printing price, but that's too close to yours. I need to come up with something creative here. I think I'd probably go back into the 50s and warn them about the 60s and just say, guys, don't get too comfortable because it's coming.
1: <laughs> See, I thought yeah. you were going to have some like, smart-ass answer, like you'd invented no. a time machine to go into the past to teach them how to invent time machines.
0: That uh, do you want to create a black hole?
1: <laughs> What's Maybe. the
0: matter with you? <laughs> well, here we are. And speaking of time, it's been such a long time. Computer, please bring up again Adrian Carton de Verre.
1: All right. So, even though we have already done this, let's just refresh everyone's mind on what our hero looks like. Could you please describe this charming picture before your eyes?
0: Well, as I if I remember correctly, I described this as the thickest person we have ever had on this show. <laughs> but that's low-hanging fruit. I don't know if I mentioned last time that he only had one hand. Ah, so you're picking
1: up on the details.
0: Yes, yes. I'm a detective, you see. Um, but that's about it. I mean, he's he's still got the eye patch, he's still got the mustache, he still looks like At least one eye has seen some pretty horrifying stuff, and the other felt some pretty horrifying (laughs) stuff.
1: Presumably it saw something horrifying coming towards it.
0: Yes, and then in eternal black, so... (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's not really much to add. He's still the tough-looking, you know, steely-eyed Belgian he was last time. And, um... Those pants have not gotten any less thick.
1: (laughs) Yeah, those were the days, weren't they? Yes, when a man uh, could
0: wear thick pants.
1: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right, so last time, as I'm sure you remember, dear listener, and Aaron, we ended with a six-year period between 1908 and 1914, during which we know that Adrian got married we know that from other other sources but that didn't make it into his memoirs that didn't that didn't cut it um, what did make it into his memoirs and all that made it into his memoirs for this whole period of 6 years were reflections on the relative attributes of different polo teams
0: yes yes i remember that how could i forget <laughs> so yes
1: he's sort of he's still in the british military he's just sitting around he's playing a lot of polo he's waiting for a war to participate in since that is kind of his deal Mhm. And in 1914 that chance finally came. So he would Adrian had recently been deployed to Somaliland to fight in the uh, the British War of Suppression against the longstanding dervish rebellion which was happening over decades and it sort of had big flare-ups and then would kind of like still be around but not really causing problems. Anyway, but it was a flare-up and the British were sending military forces to suppress it. And you may recall that he had previously applied for a transfer to this front while he was in the process of being transferred to India where the legendary ass shooting incident occurred. Um, and he was denied because they were like, dude, you're literally in the process of transferring. We're not starting this process over again somewhere else. But he got it this time and he goes to Somaliland and he starts the assignment very optimistically. Um, he's He's excited. We're going to have a war. What he says about his state of mind is that he was fondly imagining that I should be one of the few people to see a shot fired in this this time period, since this is the otherwise notoriously peaceful year of 1914. I believe they called that the Year of the White Dove. Exactly. <laughs> like, I don't know anything that happened in 1914 that wasn't peaceful. No, it was, it was all just
0: candy and rainbows.
1: <laughs> so... He soon began to regret this little assignment, however, because once things began to uh, heat up in the Europe fandom with the advent of a little dispute we call World War (laughs) One. When that starts, the war is uh, or when that war is just getting underway, Adrian... Was on his way to Somaliland since that he knew there was going to be fighting there. So he was in the process of going there. And at every port he stops at, he hears news of more fun that he was missing out on. It's like, you know, gets to the first port. It's like, hey, I think there's going to be a war in Europe. Gets to the second port. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a war in Europe. Gets to the third port. This is the biggest war we've ever had. <laughs> and he's on his way to Somaliland. Oh. So, What he says is, my cup of misery overflowed when on arrival in Aden, I learned that England also had declared war on Germany. So, congratulations, you played yourself.
0: Uh, Talk about missing your destiny. (laughs) Yeah, and
1: your excitement to get to any war at all. You went to, like, the world's least consequential war at this point, and are missing out on the biggest war. So... Uh. By finally getting into an active military zone, um, he ends up being isolated from the far more exciting and immensely more significant military experience in Europe. But, you know, Adrian is dauntless and he makes the best of the bad situation and actually finds that he rather liked Somalia um, and was also quite impressed by the quality of the native Somali troops in British service. And he, he writes a charming little passage here, which would you read this for us, Aaron?
0: Of course, of course. Uh, th- this, is, this is very interesting to hear. <clears throat> One officer who had been in a very hard fight with the dervishes told me that the Somalis had formed square and were being heavily attacked. One of his men, having fired all of his ammunition, quite simply put his rifle across his shoulders and walked into the dervishes. These are the gestures that sound so useless on paper, but are so gripping in fact and give to the war... The touch of the sublime. The Somalis were fuzzy wuzzies. <laughs> Good lord. One of my orderlies had a particularly luxuriant head of hair. <laughs> hair? <laughs> He's complimenting their hairdos. I had dismissed him after morning parade and told him to report for the next parade in about two hours' time. He duly turned up, but with his entire head shaved. And when I asked him why, he merely remarked he had a headache. <laughs>
1: So this this is the kind of thing you get all through Adrian's memoirs. Like, I get the, fir- the first paragraph, you know, the guy walking into the enemy to sort of accept his fate when he ran out of ammo and the touch of the sublime. That'll make sense. And you just get a little story like this. I really, I'm going to be real with you. I don't know what the moral of this story is about the guy shaving his head because he had a headache. I have I, no idea what the moral of that is. Uh,
0: I, I, is Fuzzy Wuzzies, like, is, I, I don't know where that comes from just saying just what does that mean i I don't that's an old-timey word yeah
1: it's the old-timey british term for the uh the people in africa so like somalis and north africans and stuff who have a particular way they wear their hair very very sort of vertical and fuzzy and sort of like an afro i guess i see i'm not sure but it's yeah it's an old-timey british term that was applied to some people in africa
0: that is super super british (laughs) yeah i don't know what else to say about that (laughs) so that was a a... computer password i had for years now that i think about it wait really yeah fuzzy wuzzy why it was a joke i i don't know i couldn't think of anything else that i could remember but the word fuzzy wuzzy just came into my head so i wrote (laughs) it in am i a am i a british
1: oppressor (laughs) probably probably So here in the uh, the Somaliland War, um, the officers in command were, like Adrian brought in from British or colonial British, British regiments, and according to him, had in common only the fact that they were short of cash. So they sort of took what was generally considered a very, very shitty assignment because they needed the extra money they would get from being deployed. And he remarks how ironic it is that, you know, these people who are suddenly finally having money find themselves in the middle of the Somali desert, which, as he says, was about the only place on Earth where one could not use money. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of that kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so while awaiting permission to begin offensive operations, Adrian and his fellow officers, you know, hunted and did target practice. And this may come as a shock, played polo. Oh, my God. Yep. I know this. that really came out of left field. Yeah, so, you
0: you really should warn me before. You, you <laughs> yeah, we need a, we need a warning like for the that. polo.
1: <laughs> but regrettably around this time as Adrian says, an officer's pet cheetah was killed by an old woman with a spear hold, who was herding goats after she mistook the pet cheetah for a wild cheetah. Adrian says it was a tragic end, but all the same she was a very brave old woman.
0: <laughs> calls it like he sees it. Calls, I like it.
1: <laughs> calls it like he sees it. Um once again, I don't know if there's a moral to that story but it was important enough to make it into the memoirs which is more than we can say about his marriage so i don't know (laughs) He wrote more about the cheetah (sighs) finally in november uh, permission arrived for an attack on a nearby dervish position around a small stone little blockhouse fort adrian naturally convinced the commanding officers to put his unit in the front because why wouldn't you Um, Right. While they were encamped nearby waiting for the final go-ahead, Adrian recalls that it was distinctly amusing how the dervishes kept popping out of the fortress to hurl insults querying our legitimacy while dodging potshots from the British troops, which I love that phrase. Hurl insults querying our legitimacy.
0: (laughs) I can't imagine what they were saying, but I'm sure it wasn't very PG.
1: (laughs) Probably not. Probably not.
0: Our legitimacy, (laughs) does that mean, like, our legitimacy of birth or something? Yes, yes, it definitely means that.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So, sort of, you know, your father was a hamster kind of thing. Nice. (laughs) So, when they finally did charge the fort, they found that it had only one little door, which was several feet above ground level, and was amply covered by loopholes around it for defensive fire. So, pretty hard to get in. And upon rushing the door, because what else would you do? Adrian was nearly hit by a bullet, which actually passed through the bulge of cloth from his rolled up sleeve, but didn't hit his body. I see. So the man's the man's got some luck, that's for sure. Yeah. But as the casualties mounted, since they're trying to force this little tiny door in a stone fortress, Adrian receives what he calls a glancing blow in his eye. But, he assures us, he was too wound up to stop, so he continued trying to force the door open. Okay, well. So, soon after, a large splinter uh, from shattering wood went through his elbow, and a bullet took half his ear off. Oh, God. So, in the first engagement here, we have a glancing blow to the eye, a pole splinter of wood going through his elbow, and a bullet taking off half his ear. But... A nearby doctor stitched him up right there and then on the battlefield Um, to the extent that he could. There wasn't anything uh, the doctor could do about his eye, since I guess eye surgery is kind of a little bit more than you can do on a, you know, in a tent in the desert. Uh, So Adrian just returns to the fray at the door just in time to see one of his lieutenants, quote, get the back of his head blown off. R.I.P. Lieutenant Simmons. Ah, press F. (laughs) But, you know, Adrian doesn't stop. So immediately after this, a bullet ricocheted off the wall and went right through the eye that he had previously been hit in. R.I.P. that eye. F. (laughs) Yep. And another unit is then brought up to renew the assault and likewise fails to take the little fortress, so the British forces withdraw into the dusk to their campsite nearby. Man. At this point, um... Apparently, the British sent a mess a messenger over and magnanimously offered to let the dervises, dervishes surrender. But, as Adrian says, this generous gesture brought forth a still brighter volley of rudery as to our parentage. <laughs> <laughs> and he smelled of elderberries. It really is. I just, I, I, I just love the way Adrian talks. A still I brighter volley of rudery as to our parentage. <laughs> man like you just you don't you don't get that anymore no no
0: (laughs) people don't talk like that these days
1: it's sad it's sad so this is this is what adrian himself says about what's going on at the moment aaron would you take it
0: it had all been most exhilarating fun and keep in mind this
1: man just lost his eye oh okay it had all been most exhilarating and this is the guy who's (laughs) literally just had his eye shot out he's like wow that was great
0: Oh, okay, so <laughs> it had all been most exhilarating, fun, and the pace too hot for anyone to have any had had any other sensation but thrill, primitive and devouring. But by the time I got back to camp, I was in bad shape, my eye very painful, and I was practically blind. Next day I had to be taken up on a stretcher behind the attacking troops. I could not be left in camp, as had the dervishes attacked as had the dervishes attacked it, my fate would have been most unpleasant. <laughs> On arriving again at the blockhouse, it was a considerable relief for us to find it had been evacuated and there were
1: no signs of our enemy. Hmm. So they the most won. Most exhilarating fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so after, uh, after this, Adrian is sort of shuttled around to a series of different medical facilities, none of which, it turned out, had the necessary equipment for eye surgery because i guess that needs some fairly specialized equipment and training Eh, and so when (laughs) all the nearby options even sort of the best british military facilities in somaliland were exhausted adrian is put on a boat up to egypt where more specialized medical care would be available Hmm. but once he gets back to cairo he is told that the remains of his eye have to be removed as soon as possible so they don't start to like I don't know rot or whatever, Um, but he refused to allow the operation to be done in Egypt, even though they wanted to do it, because he knew that a mangled eye was his best chance to get back to England, and from England he might be able to join in the ongoing fun of World War One.
0: There were there was a different breed of human being back then, like people excited about war, right? Like the classic that
1: definitely describes Adrian.
0: Yeah, like we we talked about a couple of these people. Like, uh, who was the who is the weird Buddhist guy we covered?
1: Ungarn von Sternberg.
0: That's right. That we've got all these like very very strange characters who just like there's something about war that they, they just gotta go do. <laughs> it's fascinating.
1: It's that touch of the sublime Adrian mentioned.
0: Well, that's one way of putting it.
1: <laughs> so yeah, just it's, it is just mind boggling though. It's like. Hmm, your eye is like in pieces in the socket and is going to start rotting. We need to take it out. And he's like, Hmm, I can use this to my advantage to be able to get myself involved in a bigger war. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he does uh, back to England. Yeah. He went mostly blind and suffering greatly mm-hmm. upon his arrival in England. Uh, the verdict from Cairo, Cairo was confirmed. The eye had to come out. So on January 3rd, 1915, the eye or what was left of it was removed along with a bullet fragment lodged behind it. So that was still in his skull too.
0: That must have been extremely painful.
1: (laughs) I would imagine so. But after just a few weeks of sick leave, following this surgery, Adrian appeared before the military medical board and asked permission to be redeployed on active duty to France. Literally a few weeks after having been shot in the eye, had a, you know, stake of wood go through his arm, having his ear shot off. He's like, "I'm ready, Chief. Put me back in."
0: Man, that's just somebody who loves, I loves the thrill, exhilarating yep. fun.
1: So, as you can imagine, the military board was somewhat taken aback, since people who have just lost an eye usually aren't too keen to return to active military service. Yeah. Um, But eventually he convinced them and they agreed that if he could get a suitably fitting and real looking glass eye, he could go to France. And Adrian says he wasn't really sure why they were requiring that. But then he thought about it and he figured the reason was that, quote, they did not wish the Germans to think we were reduced to sending out one eyed officers. Well, I mean, that's not a terrible point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that might be it. And it worked. And this is this is what he says.
0: At my next board, I appeared with a startling, excessively uncomfortable glass eye. I was past fit for general service. On emerging, I called a taxi, threw my glass eye out of the window, put on my black patch, and have never worn a glass eye since.
1: Oh, he's going full pirate. He, he is going full pirate. Like I love that. He puts in the glass eye literally for like one hour just to meet <laughs> the medical board and then throws it out the window of the taxi that's just amazing. So, he got his wish and in February he was back at the front this time in France, and he was quite surprised at the amenities that continental warfare allowed. He found it to be a much more comfortable experience overall than in Somaliland out in the in the desert, and mm. he he relates a lot of general observations Including that German snipers were much better than British ones. And also, he has just tons of little humorous stories that you're not really sure if they're supposed to be immoral in or not, or if just he thought they were funny. I think it's probably <laughs> that just he thought they were funny.
0: Yeah. So like at one I,
1: point. I, no, go on. No,
0: I was just going to say uh, that does not. He just writes what he likes, right? Like he talked about his six year polo fiasco. I mean, I love it.
1: <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> So at one point, um, the British and the Germans were contesting a small town, and the Germans were barricaded on one end of the street and the British on the other. Displeased at the lack of activity, a British general ordered the officer in charge of the barricade to charge the German lines, saying, This is no time to be shooting at Germans, good sir. You must charge them. The officer, having no choice in the matter, duly mounted his horse and began to charge up the street, but almost immediately his horse slips on the cobblestones and falls over, canceling the charge. That must have been quite a sight. Meanwhile, a German on a bicycle who had the downward slope of the road to his advantage then responded by making his own charge towards the British barricade on his bicycle, only to have one of the British soldiers run out and stick his rifle in the spokes of the wheel, causing the German to do a somersault over the handlebars. (laughs) What is this, Indiana Jones? Another time, a a section of the front line was held by a detachment of French soldiers who secretly left every night to go back to the nearby town and stay at a hotel in order to enjoy greater comfort than spending the night in the trenches at the line, and every morning they would get up early and take their positions again before anyone noticed. Adrian says that the Germans, being less imaginative and more disciplined, would never have conceived that the French would be doing such a thing and so never tried to take the position by night, even though it was actually empty.
0: I believe that. I I totally believe that.
1: (laughs) I just love that, though. Oh, we go to the hotel. Yeah.
0: And the Germans are like, they wouldn't be
1: in the hotel. Yeah. The the Germans are just there looking through the binoculars. Where are those bastards? Why are they hiding? So, at one point, when approaching the uh, the front line, a British officer met a French soldier who was headed the opposite direction, and he asked him where he was going, and the French soldier responded, and in, in French, of course, but I can't pronounce French well, so I put it in English, those swine are actually shooting bullets at us, and he kept running off. Early World War One really sounds like quite a good time. Nobody really nobody really knew what it was going to turn into.
0: Yeah, it hadn't quite turned into a meat grinder just yet. Yeah, I <laughs> it mean, was... you, have,
1: you have bicycle charges and people staying in hotels and
0: it just it sounds like uh it sounds like Battlefield
1: 5, honestly so soon enough, however, things got more serious <clears throat> when uh, Adrian was deployed in the Second Battle of Ypres, which was the first use of mass gas attacks, and that as of course came to sort of define a lot of the public image of World War I was the use of poison gas. but mm. of course, Adrian was unbothered by all of this. Mm-hmm.
0: I found the gas was not affecting me much, but the shelling was terrific and would have been exhilarating if only a little of it—only a little of it—had been coming from our side. I was standing next to my second in command, wondering what to do, and he said, "I wish you duck when those shells come." I was on the point of telling him that I was a fatalist and believed in the appointed hour when we heard another shell coming, and he ducked. The shell burst quite near us, and I was thrown some distance. I picked myself up and started to move my men when I noticed a hand on the ground. The hand was encased in a special kind of leather glove, which I recognized instantly as that worn by my second in command. His body was thirty or forty yards away. Oh, <laughs> my God! So don't duck, is that the lesson?
1: Maybe. Right, there's no
0: lessons in these, that's right. I mean, there might be, who knows,
1: who knows. But the fun didn't end there. That was just the first day Adrian was at Dupre. That night, his regiment was ordered to relieve a unit at the front, so off into the night they marched. Unfortunately, they got a bit lost and didn't find the line they were supposed to arrive at and ended up actually passing by it in the dark and continuing on. Adrian got a little bit worried when he saw some dead German soldiers, since he shouldn't have been seeing those behind the British line.
0: He's Mm. like, "Mm." yeah, very (laughs) peculiar.
1: (laughs) But before he could do anything about it, they ran into some very much, very much not dead Germans who immediately yelled, halt classic German move right there and opened fire. Before Adrian (laughs) knew what was going on. He found himself on the ground with his hand covered in blood and the men he had been with no longer in sight as everyone kind of scattered. Seeing the ominous outlines of Germans approaching in the darkness, he began to run back the way they had come, grabbing the scarf off a dead German on the way to wrap his mangled hand up in. Mm. But when he got close to the British forces again, they naturally shot at him, thinking he was the vanguard of the approaching Germans they'd run into, and fortunately, he was able to make himself heard and recognized before they succeeded in hitting him, so I guess the Germans are better at shooting in the dark than the British since they hit him on the first time.
0: I mean, those guns are super loud. So the fact that he was able to make himself heard amidst being shot at—that's—he must have a pretty loud voice.
1: Presumably, I mean, the volume all comes from the mustache.
0: And just over the sound of the gunfire is this this voice. This is not exhilarating fun. <laughs>
1: but that's the thing; it probably was for him.
0: It's, it's true. Like, ah, true. shooting at me, jolly good. <laughs> How delightful! <laughs> I, they mustn't hit me though; that would be bad. <laughs> And so, even if they did, it wouldn't be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So off he goes to the medic station to see what was left of his hand. As it turns out, not a whole lot. My hand was a ghastly sight. Two of the fingers were hanging
0: by a bit of skin. All the palm was shot away in most of the wrist. For the first time, and certainly the last, I had been wearing a wristwatch. <laughs> the last time he wore a wristwatch. <laughs> because his hand got blown off. It had been blown into the remains of my wrist. <laughs> I I asked the doctor to take my fingers off. He refused, so I pulled them off myself. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and felt absolutely
1: no pain in doing it. Oh he pulled off his own fingers, good lord. <laughs> yep see normally when we you know when we do these i do a lot more sort of paraphrasing and a lot less direct quoting of the you know original people but like the way adrian talks i just you can't convey that by paraphrasing no
0: you can't <laughs> there's no paraphrasing that's he pulled his own fingers on. <laughs> god
1: so that's, that's why we've got a, we've got a lot of direct quotes in here because i just i can't i can't talk like adrian does Oh, do you think that
0: he's so that he's like, "Doctor, please take my fingers off." Doctor's like, "No, I think I can save them." And he just like yanks them off and throws them on the table and just says, "How about now?" <laughs>
1: Probably. <Ugh. laughs> so, back to England for medical treatment, foiled again. Mm. Adrian just keeps ending up having to having to get patched up and miss out on the fun. Yeah. So, he spends the next several months trying to convince the doctors to stop trying to save the remainder of his hand minus the bits he'd already pulled off and just <sighs> cut the whole thing off and be done with it. But it was only after quite a few surgeries and several months that he finally convinced them to stop trying to save his hand. And the doctors let, uh, agreed and finally just chopped his hand off. According to Adrian, it was no worse than having a tooth taken out.
0: I, I find that hard to believe, but again, it's Adrian. Uh, he,
1: he is quite literally built different.
0: I was literally going to say that.
1: <laughs> So with that oh. little inconvenience taken care of, Adrian was, of course, eager to get back to the war, you know, so we got to lose the other hand
0: life. and the other eye. <laughs>
1: yep. So he convinced an old friend of his uh, who was in command of a division that would soon be deployed to France to offer him a position there as an officer in his division. The friend agreed. And with the possibility of war back on the table, Adrian recovered very quickly and left the hospital. So, since he would need to once again convince the Army Medical Board to allow him to return to active duty, he started training himself to do things one-handed, and according to him, it was pretty much a breeze.
0: People imagine the loss of a hand to be far more serious than the loss of an eye, but having tried both, I can say sincerely that it is is
1: not my experience. (laughs) So, (laughs) good, good to know. These are valuable life lessons here. Yes, yes. So soon enough, after uh, practicing, he'd gotten skilled enough for hunting, shooting, and to his great delight, tying proper knots for fishing lines one handed. And so he argued before the medical board that if he could hunt, he could fight in France again. And he says his one eye must have been wearing an honest look because the medical board believed him and let him return to the war.
0: Amazing. Amazing. They just know this man's just like a scarred tank. They have to unleash him.
1: (laughs) They're definitely definitely sending less of him back every time. Yeah. (laughs) So he got back to France just in time for a little gathering that we call the Somme, which Mm. just happens to be one of the deadliest battles in all of human history with over a million casualties.
0: You know, we just say that, just even trying to calculate that amount of, like, death and destruction and sheer like, human injury, oh, It's That's a lot. That's the psalm. It's a
1: lot. It's yeah. a lot. So, Adrian's memoirs are remarkable for how fluidly he mixes these very visceral descriptions of the absolute horror of World War I warfare with these very casual remarks and reminiscences. They're just sort of Just scattered throughout, you know, one moment a hill is flattened as if the very soul had been blasted out of the earth and turned into a void. And then in the next minute, he's noting how excellent and brave German machine gunners are. Another moment, he's remembering how one day he received eight new officers in his unit one afternoon. And by that evening, all eight were dead. (laughs) It's just he just goes back and forth. It's like it was, you know, death, death, destruction, chaos. Oh, yes, that was a very fine thing, my soul. And it's just, it's amazing the way he just mixes it all up. So during the, during the fighting, they often went without water for long periods of time. And at one point when the water supplies finally reached them, it was in gas cans that hadn't even been rinsed out first. So they're drinking like gas tainted water. Ew. (laughs) And then he tells a story, um, like uh, how a German officer who had been lying in no man's land for days of fighting and shelling happening over him, waiting for a chance to get back to his lines. Finally, when it starts to rain, just stands up and walks to the British lines to surrender. Adrian finds it hilarious that after all this guy must've suffered, literally laying in a crater while shelling is happening and fighting over him and stuff. It was finally rain that made him throw in the towel and be like, you know what? I'll just surrender.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, Hey, Sometimes at work when I'm into the that 11th hour and there's only a little time left I'll like pick up I'll just like do one little thing wrong like I don't know um I'll just hit my toe on a pallet and that's the thing that makes me just like throw down whatever I'm doing and being like
1: <laughs> god damn it I hate this Yeah uh, So Adrian yeah. also made the uh, wise decision that he could uh, or he should stop carrying a revolver since he was liable to lose his temper and get into trouble with it. You may remember the little incident in the hospital in India. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, he was probably right about that, since at one point he tripped over a, sh- a soldier who was hiding in the dark. Um, and when he realized it wasn't somebody who was wounded, but a man who was shirking his duty, Adrian actually grabs a revolver from his adjutant. But before he could do something, he'd regret like shooting the man on the spot, which is what he was planning on doing. The man scrambled over a wall and was gone. Man. So imagine having a boss Adrian, like that <laughs> Good for Adrian that he had the foresight. It's like, I'm going to do something. I regret if it's too easy for me to access a gun. And that, uh, that few seconds where he needs to grab the gun from his assistant allows this other guy to escape.
0: I, I mean, we talk about bad bosses, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I can't imagine. I, I don't even, That's That's a different kind of man, built different. Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. That very same night, while embarking on a night attack, you always know things are going to go well when you have a night attack. Nothing right. Whatever happens bad in night attacks and war. Mm-hmm. Adrian once again found himself suddenly on the ground, this time feeling like, quote, The whole back of my head had been blown off his personal aide, who he didn't let carry a rifle ever since the man had fired it right next to Adrian's ear and almost deafened him. um, The man was shooting at a passing German plane. Uh, It's actually kind of a funny story. They're just out on, you know, visiting the front or whatever, inspecting and a German plane is flying and his aide just, takes his rifle and shoots it at the plane right next to Adrian's ear and Adrian's Ugh. just like son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> And so after that he didn't let his aide carry a rifle um so that that guy is still with him though and he drags him into a shell hole to wait out the german bombardment that was starting is his and assistant for several...
0: is his assistant Dwight Schrute? <laughs>
1: For several hours, the man kept Adrian awake since he didn't know how badly he was injured and didn't want him to go to sleep and, you know, potentially die. And he he kept him awake by, as Adrian says, soliloquizing over the charms of shells versus machine gun bullets. I don't really know how you do that for several hours, but good for him. Yeah, I mean, that's an achievement. (laughs) So. When the bombardment finally lets up, the aide drags Adrian back to the medical camp, where they learned that his night attack had actually failed miserably, and most of his men and subordinate officers were dead.
0: Hmm. Shame.
1: So Adrian had kind of, uh, kind of gotten lucky there. Well, not entirely lucky, obviously, because they right. also discovered that Adrian had caught a bullet in the head from a German machine gun, but somehow wasn't dead, and they weren't entirely sure why. Um. Because they, you know, didn't want to open his head up and figure out what happened. They just knew this man has a bullet hole in his head and he's still alive. What the hell? (laughs) Getting shot in the head apparently was enough to earn him a trip back to merry old England. This dude dude is the Terminator. (laughs) He just can't catch a break either. He keeps trying to escape England and they keep dragging him back in. (laughs) There's nothing worse than
0: England, not even the song.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So once he's back in England and able to get proper medical care, they were surprised to find that his skull was actually completely intact and undamaged. The bullet had gone through the flesh underneath the skull at the back of his head, just missing his spinal cord and arteries and all that. And had just had just taken the uh, basically the only path a bullet can possibly go through your head and not seriously injure or kill you. It just went in one side right underneath the back of the skull and out the other side. I can't decide if that's
0: the luckiest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Well, it is pretty lucky. Yeah, but it's also unlucky to get shot in the head, so. True, true.
1: But (laughs) being shot in the head also prevented him from probably dying when that attack failed.
0: That is true. Unfortunately, he did have to go back to England. True, true.
1: In any case, the only complication that uh, Adrian suffered from this little mishap was that, he says, it tickled weirdly whenever he had a haircut. (laughs) Ah, yes, the old bullet wound tickle in your head. We We all know that one.
0: Yeah like, you got to use a number three, not a number two on the little clippers there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. So after only three weeks of medical care, after he was shot in the head, Adrian was back in France to rejoin the festivities. He even, and this is, he does this right after he arrives. He goes back to the same spot where he'd been shot in the head and he finds the walking stick he had dropped. Amazing. However, this very same day, as he's going to collect his walking stick, a fragment from an artillery shell goes right through his ankle, and, you guessed it, right back to England.
0: Uh, he, he can't catch a break, but he can catch lead, I'll tell you
1: what. Ain't that the truth. Oh my gosh, he's a lead sponge, this guy. Truly. So, while he was convalescing from this latest injury, um, which point I've lost track of the count, so I'm not, I'm not going to try to number it, Adrian accepted a request to be a second in a duel which a friend of his had initiated against a man who was persistently paying unwanted attentions to a female friend. Mm. Classic duel scenario. Yep. The challenged party, however, was quite averse to the idea and tried to convince Adrian's friend to retract the challenge, reminding him that there could be serious legal trouble for all involved. Especially if someone was seriously wounded or killed, since dueling is definitely not legal at this point. Right. So, I think that that's a reasonable, reasonable you know, objection. But yeah. Adrian had his own answer for that. He said, Everyone is too busy with the war to be interested in a petty trifle such as a dueling fatality. And besides, he said, if one of the combatants was killed, the rest of them could easily find a secluded spot grab a can of gas and burn the corpse before anyone knew about it. Uh, I mean, he's not wrong. What a a practical man. (laughs) This was all a bit much for the challenged man, and he wrote a signed affidavit saying that he would never talk to the woman again, and so that settled it without a duel. Adrian, however, was a bit disgruntled by this tame ending, since, as he says, the man deserved at least a good thrashing for causing this trouble over a woman that he apparently didn't care enough about to fight a duel and potentially be cremated in the British woods for.
0: He has another good point.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: Unassailable logic.
1: I I know, I know. I stand in awe. (laughs) So after returning to France for the who knows what time... Adrian was made a temporary Brigadier General, to replace one who was killed on the front. But, of course, being Adrian, he still insisted on spending a lot of time up close and personal in the fighting, and soon enough got part of his ear blown off by a bit of shrapnel, but fortunately for him he was able to get it stitched up on site and wasn't sent back to England.
0: Well, was it the other ear or was it the same ear because he's still got to get the other one if he wants to be He know.
1: doesn't say. He did not say which ear. Uh. So, I don't know.
0: So it's it, not it's either a double piercing or he finally got both ears pierced. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: So not long after this, however, while heading to the line, of course, he was caught in the path of a German bombardment and had his whole hip blown open by an exploding Ugh. shell nearby. <laughs> It's the unluckiest
0: man in the world, but also the
1: luckiest.
0: It's like he's still alive.
1: Yep. And so after uh, regaining consciousness, because he was knocked unconscious, and so the surgery and everything happened while he was still out, he asks about, you know, like how many casualties were there? Because he expected, because it was a huge bombardment starting, and he's expecting to hear of massive death and casualties. And he finds that he had been literally the only casualty of the whole bombardment was him getting (laughs) his hip blown open. They were targeting him specifically. (laughs) But while he was still being treated, um, his headquarters, where he would otherwise have been, was hit badly by a bombardment, and he probably would have been killed if he hadn't already been hit and in the hospital. But, of course, this injury ended up sending him back to England for another three months. It's exhausting. I mean, this man, it's just like... Every, I imagine every time they put him they put him on the boat to go back to England. I just imagine it's always like the same captain being like, oh it's him again
0: but, yeah the same crew they have his quarters all set up, you know his bed made the way he likes and <laughs> yep. they just expect him every
1: day. <laughs> so for whatever reason I, I don't understand this but uh British military command was getting pretty reluctant to send him back to France. Why I don't, I don't I don't understand. I don't know. Wh- yeah, like he must had something against him. I don't understand. Uh-huh. But so he he really has to pull some strings and call in all his favors to finally get uh get permission to go back. Unfortunately, his next stay was, as he says, disagreeably short, since his other leg was blown up by an artillery shell pretty much <laughs> as soon as he arrived. Well, not fully blown up, but badly mangled and. Oh God. Back to England. (laughs) This is getting ridiculous. I love that. Disagreeably short. I know, that's a literal quote. (laughs) This is great. This is great. So while he's waiting on his stretcher on his train platform with his latest blown up leg, a clergyman who's standing there tries to comfort the wounded, one-eyed soldier by saying that just a few months before he'd met a soldier who had lost both an eye and a hand and that he had pulled through and done all right. And the name of that soldier was Adrian Carton de Viert. <laughs> the, the clergyman did not recognize him as the same guy who he'd been comforting last time he was blown up. <laughs> this is just silly. I know. I know. Oh, this my is, God. No, this, is, this is peak comedy. Oh, wow. So by the time Adrian was recovered, um, God alone knows how, he was able to convince command to once again let him go back.
0: I think at this point, they have a sick curiosity. They're like, "What if? He, what if what's he <laughs> going to get gonna blown take? up this time? Yeah. <laughs> <They probably laughs> when will like you learn pool? your...
1: How many times do we have to teach you this <laughs> lesson, old man? They probably have a betting pool at the British Military Medical Board. Like, knowing knowing mm, the British. of eight pounds on him losing his other hand. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot
0: of officers getting really rich.
1: <laughs> so, unfortunately... Um, Wars go by fast when you're getting blown up and having to be hospitalized every few <laughs> weeks. So by the time he makes it back for, what is this, like the sixth or seventh time? I don't even know. Don't know. He was only there for three days before the war ended. <laughs> I know. Disappointment. So yeah, Adrian, Adrian felt a mixture of relief and, of course, disappointment at this. And he sort of sums up his feelings with this wonderful little quote here. Frankly, I had enjoyed the war. It had given me many bad moments, lots of good ones, and plenty of excitement. <laughs> oh my god, he's so funny. <laughs> I th- yeah, I think like getting blown up like eight times does count as many bad moments. Uh, it also qualifies him
0: as the the <laughs> the most slapstick comedian in the history of the world. <laughs>
1: I know. I know. Comedi- you know, comedians would probably be better if they studied history. I agree like you, with that. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. No, it's way funnier
0: than any of the jokes they tell these days. It's it, like you, reality is funnier
1: than any written joke. You just have to look. Yep. Yeah. So pretty much as soon as the war was over, um, Adrian was summoned to the war office. He thought that he was going to be once again put on some sort of committee and asked for suggestions about military reorganization, which would inevitably be ignored as all the suggestions he had made always had been. Uh, But to his surprise, he was asked to go to Poland to serve as second in command of the British military mission, which was currently deciding if Britain should get involved with the four wars Poland was currently fighting against the... Bolshevik Russians, the Lithuanians, the Czechs, and the Ukrainians. Yeah. So Poland is is, involved in a lot, and the British are sort of unsure if they want to get involved and try to put a stop to any of this. So they send a military mission there to kind of assess the situation. And somehow Adrian gets picked to be second in command, even though he admits that his knowledge of Poland up to this point consisted of knowing that it was a place somewhere near Russia. He says that's all he knew about Poland when he was appointed.
0: It doesn't take much, I guess.
1: <laughs> You're just getting blown up all over the place. Oh. So, figuring that this assignment might allow him to, you know, at least indirectly get back into some wars, and also figuring that it must have been offered to him by some mistake since he had no sort of relevant experience, he immediately accepted and got underway before anyone could discover the heir. Mm. Um... Fun fact, the commander of the British military mission was General Botha, who we talked about when we did the Boer Wars. He was one of the Boer leaders who decided that cooperation with the British was the only way to move forward after the war. And so he was a he's working for the British and he was the leader of the military mission. Hmm. So, yes, the British have sent a Belgian and a Boer to Poland. Well, I mean, to decide what to do about the Lithuanians.
0: It's not the craziest (laughs) thing the British have ever done. True,
1: true. So Adrian goes to first to Paris because that's where the uh, the mission is convening before then heading to Poland. But within a week, General Botha fell ill and died, hmm. leaving Adrian, who didn't even know where Poland was, in charge of the military mission to Poland. Well,
0: you know, it's not like you need to know anything you know, about the country. It's one of those
1: learn-on-the-job positions.
0: They'll exactly. You know, they'll train you everything you need to know right there for free. And they'll probably pay you while you're being trained. So, you know,
1: yeah, no, like it, it could, it could be a lot worse. It could be yes. a lot worse. So, you know, Adrian, of course is dauntless and is raring to go. So off to Poland, he goes without general both since he's dead upon his arrival. Adrian becomes very sympathetic to the Poles when he realized sort of how rough a position they were in. And he tries to negotiate peace with the Ukrainians to relieve some of the pressure on the poles, since they're fighting you know four wars right unfortunately that was unsuccessful and the mission traveled back to warsaw but on the way they were actually ambushed by ukrainians who ha- fire a machine gun at the train which kills several polish officers who were hanging onto the outside of the train in an attempt to leave the front because hmm. several several officers wanted to leave and try to convince adrian to let them in the train and of course adrian almost you know killed one of his own soldiers for shirking his duty, so he's obviously not gonna let these people onto his train to desert from the front. Um right. so they just grab a hold of the train and are hanging on the outside and then get shot by the Ukrainians. That's rough. <sighs> and the um uh, the Ukrainian commander at this point, uh, was a guy named Petlura. And that that's important here for this this next quote.
0: A year later when Petlura had been dry driven out of the Ukraine. He came to me in Warsaw to beg my help. He greeted me as a long-lost friend, and I had to remind him that our previous, at our previous contact, he or his people had tried to shoot me up in a train. I helped him get to Paris, where later he was assassinated.
1: <laughs> okay. Yep, you know, life, life comes at you fast. I guess, I guess so. <laughs> I, I do love that, though. I had to remind him that he tried to have me killed. Just yeah. sort of like, just how nonchalant it all is. It's like reminding somebody you meet that, like, you went to high school together or something. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's like, you remember when you tried to have me killed on the train? That's right. That was hilarious. Yeah. How can I help <laughs> you get to Paris? <laughs> yep. So from Warsaw, uh, Adrian then travels back to Paris to give his report and recommend that the British provide military supplies to help the Poles. Unfortunately, since Poland was in the French sphere of influence based on this convoluted system that the Allies invented after World War I about who's going to get to sort of interfere in whose business, um, and the French get to interfere in Poland's business—that's one of their assignments— Um, Because of that system, the Prime Minister of England, David Lord George, who did not share Adrian's great sympathy for the Poles, insisted that he wasn't going to send any direct help to the Poles, and instead he would encourage the French to help the Poles, since he didn't want to upset the uh, diplomatic arrangements. So, the French did allegedly help the Poles. Um, Adrian says they provided 1,500 officers who were supposed to sort of help train and organize the Polish army. Which, according to Adrian, didn't work because the French officers did nothing except, like, smug, sell smuggled and stolen goods and get involved in petty crime and drink a lot and go to parties.
0: <laughs> well, that does sound pretty ineffective, I mean, but they are French, so.
1: So, yeah, so Adrian was definitely quite disappointed about that, that outcome. Now, why did he
0: try to tra- tra- train all the Polish himself?
1: Because they wouldn't let him. Ah, yes the prime minister wouldn't let them directly. That's right. Yes. Yes. So nevertheless, Adrian and the military mission continued their work of observation in Poland, uh, moving around looking at the different fronts. And he's sort of unofficially given advice and counsel, you know, not in my official capacity as the leader of the British military operation you know, mission. But uh, if I were you, I'd, I'd do this. And sometimes he's being listened to. Usually he's not. Um, but that's just the way of the world. Right. So at one point, as they're fleeing the town of Rovno, while it is is being overrun by a Bolshevik of advance, Adrian's train car, which was the last one on the train that they're traveling in, was actually hit by an artillery shell and disabled. And finding he only had two bullets in his revolver, Adrian decided he would use the first one on the first Bolshevik he could find and the second one on himself. But, and he runs outside to do this. But apparently after disabling the train car, the Bolsheviks didn't approach any closer. They just kind of stayed on the hill and watched. And Adrian begrudgingly allowed himself to be brought up to the surviving train cars uh, from which the damaged one had been detached.
0: Ah, I see. I I only have one question. Yes. Why would he use the first bullet on a Bolshevik and not the second bullet on a Bolshevik?
1: because he's going to kill himself with the second.
0: One. I know, but he could guess he could get another Bolshevik.
1: Presumably he doesn't want to be in Bolshevik captivity.
0: I know, it's I'm just being silly.
1: Probably not a a pleasant. Probably even honestly more unpleasant than if he'd been, you know, wounded in camp when the uh the dervishes attacked, like you said said most unpleasant fate. This one would probably be more unpleasant.
0: So so not not uh thrilling and exhilarating fun. Yeah. I'm just making a bad joke. Please carry on.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably more like slow starvation. Yeah, yeah. So, during his uh, time with the military mission, Adrian naturally continued to get himself into trouble because that's just just how he rolls. Mm-hmm. He gets shot at quite a few times because he's uh, he's taking a little bit more active roll in things than he's probably supposed to, you know, going right up to battle lines and stuff. At one point he's shot at by a Polish sentry who mistook his group for the enemy. And Adrian responds by getting off his truck and throwing the man into a pond. (laughs) (laughs) Yep,
0: That sounds like Adrian.
1: (laughs) That's classic Adrian. He also once has a bullet hit six inches from his head while he's flying over Latvia in an observation plane. Um, Good. which he doesn't realize he's he remembers He they saw somebody somebody with a with a rifle shoot at their plane but they just kept flying or whatever And when they land adrian sort of looks over and sees that there's like a bullet hole in the plane right next to his head
0: there was probably yeah. the same assistant he took the gun from who was shooting at a plane <laughs> earlier
1: Bad. Like, oh, my word the bullet <laughs> <laughs> um once again he acted as a second in a duel this time between pro-British and anti-British members of the Polish aristocracy. Um, I think this duel also didn't actually happen, uh, if memory serves. I believe that one party chickened out and ran away, Mm. which, of course, Adrian was distressed about. Of course. Yep. So at one point, he's uh, he's dispatched to the Polish-Lithuanian disputed area, where they're fighting, to report on the situation there. But... His train was stopped when it reached a bridge that had been destroyed. They have to stop the train. And so Adrian takes one Polish officer with him and goes wandering around to try to find the nearest Polish headquarters. But just like that one night with their uh, trying to reinforce the front line, he accidentally wanders onto the other side of the lines and into the Lithuanian zone and was captured. Unfortunately for him, the uh, the Polish officer who had accompanied him was a well known to Lithuanian authorities as a Polish spy. He was actually one of the the top intelligence officials in the Polish military, so that looks pretty suspicious if you're caught with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so they're held for several days before uh, diplomatic channels secure their release. Since after all, the British are technically neutral in this war and are just there for observation. So the Lithuanians. Uh, you know, eventually agree to, uh, to release them through diplomatic channels. And this is, this is what Adrian remarks. When I got back, I heard that after I had been
0: missing from my railway coach for a couple of days, I had been presumed killed, and I was shown a most touching and flattering obituary notice, written in memoriam and published by the Wolf Agency in Berlin. My servant James, confident I should return, was still waiting for me in the railway coach by the demolished bridge, and would not allow anyone near it. So this guy knows him well enough. He's like, he ain't dead.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. That's (laughs) awesome. That was precisely the the thought I had about that. It's like, he knows. He knows what's going on.
0: He's not dead. Nothing can stop this man. Exactly. So by 1924,
1: uh, Poland's wars were finally wrapping up, quite favorably for the Poles, in fact. They end up getting almost all the disputed territories they're fighting over. And so the military mission was disbanded. Citing a difference of opinion with the war office, and he doesn't say what it was about, Adrian resigned his commission and took his retirement, probably just being disappointed that there wasn't a war going on for him to participate in.
0: Yeah, probably.
1: (laughs) So what do you do in retirement if you're a person like Adrian? Well, hunting and shooting, of course. I'm pretty sure Polo is out of the question by this point with uh, the hand and the legs both being mangled. Yeah. Yeah, so Polo is probably out of the question. But hunting and shooting. So where do you do this? Well, as it happened, Adrian's last assistant on the Polish mission was actually a Polish prince who had recently inherited a 500,000 acre estate when his uncle was killed by the Bolsheviks. Wow. That is really, really big. That's a lot of land. <laughs> you know what? I Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this up right now, how many square miles 500,000 acres is. Let's find out. Yes.
0: I, and then I want to know how many square miles Poland is. I'm going to try that. Let's see here.
1: Poland in square miles. It's almost 800 square miles. Wow.
0: Um, Poland is 120,726 square miles total. How many? 120,726.
1: Okay, so this is over half a percent of Poland. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Over half a percent of Poland. Yeah. (laughs) That's That's a a lot of Poland. (laughs) That's a pretty big estate this guy inherited. Yeah. So yeah, he inherited this when his uncle was killed by the Bolsheviks. And so having nothing to do at this point, Adrian agreed to accompany the prince to inspect his inheritance to see what condition everything was in and what it was like. And Adrian found it to be a sportsman's paradise of lakes and rivers and trees with lots of game and birds and all sorts of things and just not a lot of people, and just great hunting and fishing opportunities. And so Adrian remarked to the prince that if the prince knew of any place like this that Adrian could rent, he would love to remain in Poland for his retirement. And within a few months, the prince gets in contact with him and tells him that he has found the perfect place within this 500,000-acre estate that Adrian can live. I guess it takes a while to sort of search 500,000 acres and figure out the perfect spot. That's true, yes. So the prince offers him a house. It had been formerly, I believe, a gamekeeper's house on the old estate. And it's situated on an island in the forest, um, surrounded by vast forested marshlands. And it's accessible only by boat. There's no road to it. And Adrian just absolutely fell in love with it and asked how much the prince would rent it to him for. The prince, of course, magnanimously refused any money and sets Adrian up on this little estate on the island within his massive estate. Wow, that's sweet. I know, that's a pretty good deal. And so Adrian actually spends the next 15 years there in a peaceful retirement. During which time, he says, I did not waste one day without hunting. Man, that sounds like paradise. (laughs) I know. And so basically, all Adrian talks about in his memoirs about this point is domestic arrangements and hunting and fishing and stuff. Um, he just, it seems like an incredibly wonderful existence. He lived there. Yeah. On his little Island house.
0: That's amazing. I'm a little jealous. I won't lie. I'm very jealous. <laughs> I'm very jealous.
1: <laughs> I guess he yeah, earned that,
0: it by having his whole body blown up a few times.
1: Yep. And the name of this little estate was Proston, mm. by the way. So Adrian spends 15 years there in a very peaceful retirement, not, not being at war. Um, there are a few instances, like one point, apparently, while he was gone hunting, bandits robbed his house and stole a bunch of vodka. <laughs> um, Did he hunt them he, down and get and the vodka his hun- back? And one of his hunting jackets. Ah. Oh. And so Adrian, of course, though, being that he was, you know, the head of the British military mission, he's very well connected. And so he actually sends a complaint about this to the prime minister of Poland, um, who tells the uh, the sort of you know, local police or whatever to deal with the bandit issue. And Adrian says within a few days, five bandits had been killed and fighting the police. Wow. And that uh, the police had recovered his hunting jacket, but that it was no longer in suitable condition to wear. So I wonder if one of them was wearing it when he got shot by the police.
0: Potentially, potentially.
1: (laughs) Yep. But good things can't last forever, I guess, because by 1939... World War II was starting to get underway, and the Soviet advance into Poland forced Adrian to evacuate his beloved marshland estate, because it was only a few miles from the Russian border, actually. Oh, man.
0: Uh, I'll read this quote. The Bolsheviks came to Prustin in 1939, and they took all I had, my guns, rifles, rods, clothes, furniture, but they could not take my memories. I have them still, and live them over and over again. (laughs) Oh, Though I do not think one should be tied to one's possessions, as they so easily become one's master's. I had several pangs over the loss of my guns and old shooting clothes. I vaguely hope that some omnipotent commissar is not strutting around in my fur coat. Ah,
1: man. (laughs) I know. I love that last line, though, about hoping some commissar isn't wearing his clothes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but at least he got 15 sort of idyllic years out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they came for him again. Yep. So with nowhere else to go, Adrian accepted being recalled to the reformed British military mission to Poland, even though he was nearly 60 years old at this point. Um, hmm. I think He was 59 right now. However, it was short lived, this reformed British military mission, because, as you know, the Polish efforts to resist the Soviet invasion on one side and the German invasion on the other side fell apart very quickly. And the Polish government, along with the military mission, was evacuated from Poland. They actually almost didn't make it out. They had to go into Romania. And the Prime Minister of Romania at that point was pro-British. And he got them out of Romania. He made the arrangements to get them out of Romania. And literally later that day was assassinated. Wow. So they just barely made it out of Romania. Man. So... After that, though, Adrian still wasn't done. He was then assigned by the British government to lead a small Anglo-French force in Norway to counter the German invasion. But unfortunately, it was a disaster from the start. Um, His plane was shot down on arrival, and the only reason that uh, he survived was probably because the plane, actually, the German plane that had shot down, the British plane, uh, had run out of ammo and gone back after shoot, after hitting the plane, and so they was able to sort of crash peacefully and make it to shore after the plane left. Well, that's, the yeah, operation unlucky. was undersupplied and underarmed. Um, the British command had really planned the whole thing quite poorly. They had vastly underestimated the German military, and it was just a mess. They get quickly surrounded, and it's really only thanks to Adrian's... Uh, Good ability as a commander and bravery, he's able to break out of the encirclement and get his troops to somewhere that they can be evacuated by the Royal Navy. And actually, I think a couple of British ships are sunk by a uh, by German bombardment as they're doing this evacuation. And so, wow. yeah, it was it was a, it was a mess. But uh, and Adrian is you know 60 years old at this point, and he's still right there on the front.
0: Right, but he's tough as nails. You know, it's like. That that doesn't leave no matter how old you get, it seems, until, you know, you're very, 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 very old, but not for this kind of person anyway.
1: So from there, he's still in active duty, and he's actually stationed as the commander of a division posted in Northern Ireland to defend against any potential invasion. Um, Because remember, we talked about with the the Ireland episodes that the anti-British sentiment meant that a lot of a lot of Irish revolutionaries were very willing to cooperate with the Germans if the Germans wanted to do something.
0: Right, yeah.
1: And so he's stationed at a commander of a division that's there. Before too long, however, the military authorities finally decided that Adrian was too old and had too many injuries to be, continue being an active duty officer. So he was withdrawn from the position um, and retired from active duty. But the British Empire wasn't done with him yet, In 1941, he was sent on a secret mission to Yugoslavia to make contact with the government there and coordinate British support. Um, Since the Yugoslavia had both pro- and anti-Axis factions, and it was all very confusing, and the British were having trouble figuring out what the real situation was, so they wanted to sort of send Adrian there as like a secret pipeline that they could figure out who was pro-British and who to support and stuff like that. But... He never made it because his plane's engines failed and he crashed in the water off the coast of Italy. Again? <laughs> yep, another plane crash. Upon swimming to shore, Adrian was captured, uh, since, you know, Italy is, of course, an Axis power, and he was sent to an officer's prison camp where he remained despite many escape attempts, one of which he actually made it for eight days after escaping before being recaptured, which is really impressive since he didn't speak Italian and was kind of recognizable. Right. You know, the whole one hand, one eye thing. Yeah. But he actually <laughs> he lasted for eight days before being caught. Um, and so his confinement there actually lasted for total two years until he's finally released by the Italian government. Because at this point, the Italian government is wanting to sort of make a backroom deal with Britain to leave the war. Mm. And uh, they think if we can release, we'll release this guy and we'll send a message with him back to England about wanting to open up this sort of channel of secret communication, negotiating our exit from the war. So Adrian kind of lucked out that they wanted somebody like him, a, you know, a respected and trustworthy British military commander to deliver this message for them. Otherwise he probably would have stayed in the prison camp. Yeah, probably. But mm-hmm. after two years, they let him out um, due to the fact that this is very secret Uh, since obviously they don't want the Germans finding out what they're doing. They end up sending him, I think, to the Iberian Peninsula, through like Spain into Portugal, and from there into England. And so he makes it back to England, delivers his message, whatever. He's done with that. But as soon as he makes it back to England, Churchill, Winston Churchill, actually sends him to be his personal representative to Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader in China. Right. So he's just, he's just all over the place. Yeah, um, he's,
0: he's a man of many, uh, many roles, it seems.
1: And he stays there in China until 1947. Uh, he tours, you know, the various fronts of the Pacific War and provides military advice to the Chinese nationalists. He at one point actually publicly interrupts and insults Mao. And apparently it was like a real awkward moment. And then Mao just sort of did like the chuckle and smile and kept going. But yeah, he met (laughs) Mao a number of times and just absolutely hated him and very much encouraged the British to, you know, put all their support behind Chiang Kai-shek as the next leader of China. Because obviously at this point, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao were both fighting the Japanese and it wasn't really clear what was going to happen after the war. So Adrian is very much encouraging the British to support Chiang Kai-shek.
0: Yeah, it's, man, the politics of all of this stuff at during the two world wars, it's just crazy. Getting a clear picture of what was going on in any particular theater of either war is, it's just nuts.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so Adrian, of course, at this point, isn't actively fighting anymore. I mean, he's over 60 years old, um, but he does get, he actually has some front row seats to some naval battles and some air battles a few times from the... From the decks of British ships, he's able to watch air battles between uh, the Japanese and the Allies, and so he's at least getting to, you know, he's getting to be there even if he can't exactly participate anymore. Um, and so, yeah, for this sort of the first time ever that he's not being personally involved in life-threatening situations every other day, which does make sense since he was getting pretty old. Yeah. So, on his return journey, 1947, uh, he stops by Rangoon, which is in Burma to visit a friend of some variety and he actually slips on a coconut mat a coconut stalk mat in a hotel on the stairs falls down the stairs breaks several vertebrae and is knocked unconscious so while the doctors are operating on him for his vertebrae they actually end up finding and removing quite a collection of assorted shrapnel bits and bullets and stuff that are everywhere but he ends up recovering just fine after this.
0: He's not getting out without one last injury.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So a few years after his return back to England, uh, his wife, whom, of course, he basically never mentions in his memoirs, died. Um, He remarries a couple years later at age 71, um, and he settles down on a country estate in Ireland in County Cork, where he spends his time working on his memoirs. Polishing his medals, and of course, hunting and shooting every day. And finally, after 12 years of this retirement, Adrian Cartan de Viert died at age 83 on the 5th of June, 1963. What a life. (laughs) I know. Like, just think of all the things he'd seen, like having lived, you know, lived that long after having participated in so many of these historical events.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his entire life was basically spent in conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating fascinating i mean see see so he died at 83 1963 that would make him born in 1880 yep 1880 oh, man the amount of change you would see in that period of time from 1880 to the 60s good grief
1: no uh, i mean it's it's incomprehensible it's
0: incomprehensible uh it's almost as if being in the war would keep him busy so he didn't notice all of the change going on around him but man from 1880 to 1963 that is a culture shock that's culture shock after culture shock Uh, no wonder he's just like I don't know um, unafraid of being traumatized over and over and over again
1: I love the fact that when he has the back surgery they're just like finding bits of shrapnel in there that he probably didn't even know about
0: Yeah, it's like cleaning up an old Terminator. We can rebuild him. Man. Man, you know, I feel like it was worth the wait to get to part two of this thing. Like, we've been busy and everything, and life's been kind of crazy all over the place. But I'm really glad we were able to wrap this one up, because that is a hell of a story. From front to back.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Like, this... The, as I said, the least killable Belgian man. Like you, just you can't put this guy down.
0: Yeah, you can blow off his ears and his eyes and his legs, and he just keeps on showing up,
1: and he's all over the world. Yeah, and I, lo- I love just the little sort of offhand encounters, like the fact that he like publicly insults Mao at a meeting. Yeah. His face. Yeah.
0: Like, <laughs> it's almost as if there isn't a single situation in World War One or World War Two. Where he didn't have a hand in it.
1: (laughs) Uh, 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 I see what you did there.
0: Yes, but he only saw half of it. So, (laughs) with all that, I think it might be time to head up to the surface and close this out. Let's do it. All right.
1: So, Aaron... If you had to receive one of the many injuries the, the I was said the injuries that combined <laughs> injuries and Adrian. Okay. <clears throat> Start that over. Yep. So, Aaron, if you had to receive one of the many injuries that Adrian did, which would you choose and why?
0: Well, you know, I've actually been thinking about this. Would I rather suffer the injury of an eye or suffer the injury of, you know, a an ear getting shot off or a branch going through my elbow? Of all of the injuries that Adrian experienced, I think I'd have to go with the 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 biggest injury of course, which was being awarded with a home in the marshland. <laughs> I mean, that was so injurious. It was his suffering had to be immeasurable living on an a, a, in a state of 500,000 acres in an idyllic little swamp home on an island accessible only by boat, hunting and shooting every day in the peace and quiet of nature. That must have been so hard, so I'd have to select that injury.
1: I mean, wh- you know, how could you do that when you could just, you know, live in a pod and eat the bugs in some sort of sprawling megacity? Uh, living well, I in mean,
0: the sprawl. stronger,
1: <laughs> Stronger men back in those days, I guess.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. Well, if you had to choose an injury that Adrian had, which one would you choose to suffer?
1: Well... Going on by what Adrian said, of course, he said that losing an eye was much worse than losing a hand. Mm. So, like, because my initial, my initial choice would probably be the eye, because one, eye patches are cool. And two, like, you know, you still have half your vision, your depth perception's off, but like most things you can still do I would seem to me that most things you could still do relatively normally. Losing a hand, I feel like, would require a lot more sort of relearning how to do things. But Adrian says that the the hand really wasn't a big deal at all, so I don't know what to make of it.
0: Well, so you'd pick the hand, basically.
1: I'm just going to—I'm going to take this man's word for it, basically, and take the hand— Take it off. Take it off, doctor.
0: I think that's, uh, I think he's a trustworthy source for information about what appendage you should lose. Um, Yeah. Well, with that, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you probably still have all your limbs and eyes. So consider funding the show by becoming a Patreon supporter on patreon.com. Or, if Patreon is not your thing and we get it, you can drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. We do like tips quite a bit. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration, and we have again hired him again to update our aging facade. And that may change depending on how things go moving forward. But we should have some new art soon, so you can look forward to that. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of Polish marshland play you out. We know how busy families are these days. Time is more valuable than ever.
1: That's why at Marsh, we have a three-in-line guarantee. If there are more than three people in line, we'll open a new register for you. Saving money is easy when you use your Marsh Fresh Idea Card. With your Fresh Idea Card, save on Pepsi products. 24-pack, $3.98. USDA Choice Boneless Sirloin Steak, $1.98 a pound. And Red Delicious Apples, 8-pound bags are $1.88. Prices good through Sunday only at Marsh.